Welcome to The Birth Debrief, a safe place where women and families are invited to share their stories of pregnancy, birth and postpartum journeys. The Birth Debrief centers experiences that may be difficult for others to hear. We are lifting the lid on topics that aren't often spoken about. Loss, infertility, discrimination, obstetric violence, birth trauma and so much more. If you are processing any trauma or pain from your parenting or birth experiences, please consider whether listening to these stories may be right for you at this moment in time. Today I bring to you guys the second part of my interview with Kristen, my sister. We talk about many, many things. Um, we finish off her birth story with her third pregnancy and second daughter and we speak in depth about advocacy work, birth advocacy, home birth, hospital birth and growth from trauma. Kristen shares some book recommendations on resources that helped her get through her trauma and also shares lots of information on how you can get involved in advocacy if you are feeling the call to do that. Um, This episode starts a little abruptly and ends in the same manner. It was a pretty casual chat (laughs) being my sister. So I hope you enjoy it. Let me know if you have any questions. I will put a couple of links in the notes to the episode uh, where you can reach out to Kristen if you wish to. And you can also just get in touch with me if you like. Thank you so much for tuning in yet again. And I can't wait to bring you the next episode of The Birth Debrief. Yeah, I went into labour started on my husband's birthday and it sort of went away, like it went through the night and then went away, or it was the day before. Yeah, it was the day before. It was, yeah. Um, and it went away in the morning. And so... So you know, the sun came up and your labour stalled. Yeah, it stalled. And um, because we'd been really shifty about her the due date, it was kind of hard to hide it because the next day was his birthday and um, and his family wanted to do something with him. Mm. And they'd been trying to trying different tactics to find out what the due date was throughout the pregnancy and uh, started by, you know, just straight up asking and then asking Georgia and then asking, um, oh, can we organise something for your birthday? And I was always like, no, we don't want to have anything set in, you know, mm. no bookings, no mm. nothing, no commitments. Mm. And so on the day when they were like, oh, we're just going to come by and pick you up for lunch and I didn't go, I think it was pretty obvious that I was either in labour or um, close to it. So, yeah, the, the rest of the day, I, you know, my midwife told me to sleep and I didn't really. <laughs> and I wish I had of, but... You know, it's kind of hard to do that. Yeah. So when it kicked in again at night, yeah, I think that was it. We, I can't, I can't remember much of the early part. Um, How are you feeling mentally after it stalled? 
Ah, uh, okay. I think mm. I don't. I don't remember not feeling okay mm. about it. Like, I think you know, it was explained to me that that was normal. That it can, when the sun comes up, it can just die down. Mm. Um, I think the night before, I was convinced it was go time, and she kept telling me, "No, it's not. It's not." So I wish I had listened then. <laughs> Because maybe I could have gotten a bit more rest and just, you know. Anyway, um, yeah, so when it started again, we, we filled up the pool the day before and it was still warm. Like we put the cover on it and it was still warm, so we just had to top it up. Uh, so I don't remember much of the, you know, I think we just did our normal day-to-day thing. I think I put Georgia to bed that night. I must have. And then things started to pick up again, like nine-ish or something. And, um, yeah, I think that's when we called the midwife to come. It's about mm-hmm. 9.30. should have looked at my notes. I can't remember the times of things. Yeah, we had mum there as kind of a backup for Georgia. Um, and I didn't have a doula. So it was just you, the midwife, and James and mum. And, yeah, I don't remember much of the, you know, before we just had our, I had my little setup with the flags and the pool and everything. And, um, yeah, things, it was fine. Like I, all the fears, I think I might have mentioned last time, all the fears I had in pregnancy about uterine rupture. It didn't occur to me once mm. in labour, which was really good yeah um so I did get the feeling later on that every time a contraction came she would move down and when it finished she would move back up right and it was the most annoying thing because you know I felt like oh I can feel it moving down making progress and then that progress disappears Mm. and after I told my midwife that she suggested getting out of the pool, Mm. which I didn't really want to do. And I remember how hard it was to get out. So she, you know, she asked could she do a cervical exam and I said yes, but she she knew not to tell me how many centimetres. She Mm. just said you're further along than you think you are. Um, And that was really painful, that CE. Then I think I got back in the pool after that. and. The pool was great. Um, I still think back on it now and wonder if maybe I should have moved around more before I got in the pool. Like maybe I got in the pool too soon, you know, all those what ifs. I ended up having to get out again because she just wasn't moving down. And so I got into a supported squat with James holding me up and then she started to to move down. But um I felt like I was crown she was crowning for like two hours or something. It was a long time and just not like you know, my midwife kept saying to me, um, I want you to really try this time and I was like, I am. Yeah. You know, I was trying so hard and I looked at them at one point, the two midwives talking to each other, and I thought just judging by the looks on their faces that, oh, we're going to have to transfer. And so that was my biggest fear, I think, having to go back to the hospital. So, 
yeah, that was disheartening, but she said to me, um, you know, baby's doing fine and I think she could go a bit longer, but if you want, I think she's just stuck on your perineum. I can do an episiotomy for you now. And I was so relieved that she could do it at home because I was thinking, how am I going to even stand up, let alone get into an ambulance? Like, you know, yeah, that was my concern, just getting to the hospital, not even being there. Wasn't even really thinking about that. And, you know, of course, Georgia, who at some point during all of this had woken up from the noise and mum brought her in. And I was looking at the pictures the other day of um, there's one of her mum holding her and she looked a bit scared. Mm. And so, yeah, I remember telling mum to take her back into a room because it was too much of a distraction. So, like, I had done preparation with her watching videos, but it's different, you know. Yeah. And so that was fine. I, you know, I was always flexible about that. But, yeah, I was worried about, you know, leaving her even though she was with mum. And so as soon as I learned I could do that at home, I was all for it because I was exhausted and sick of, not making any progress, like pushing really hard and nothing happening. And I didn't really know much about episiotomy at the time. Like I knew enough to know that it was a, you know, diagonal sort of cut, but, yeah, didn't know she could do it at home. So I never really looked into it because I didn't think it was going to be an option for me, which is funny because I looked at every other intervention, Mm. you know. It's so interesting that you say that you were relieved because I remember being so heartbroken for you when she brought up the episiotomy. And I remember saying to James, like, is she going to be okay with this? And he's like, oh, yeah. He's like, if she doesn't have to go to hospital, like, this is, like, good news for her. And I think that's really important to note because when it's not – when you aren't the birthing person and – you cast judgment on things like episiotomies and C-sections and things like that, like the difference of perspective there, you were relieved. And I was heartbroken for you because I assumed that you wouldn't want that. Mm. But that was like good news for you, you know. So I could have, like I was sitting there being like, oh, this is bad, like, oh, my God, you know, when in your head you're like, oh, thank you, you know. Yeah. I think because it was a choice between two shit things. Yeah. Like, one, the worst one would have been having to transfer, especially in an emergency situation, you know. And I, although she did tell me I had a bit more time, I felt like I'd given it all that I had mm. at the time. And I sort of have to trust that, you know, although I, there were a lot of what-ifs, like at the time I was relieved, but afterwards I started to think, was that the right thing to do? Should I have moved around more, changed positions? Is there any way she could have gotten my perineum out of the way with her hands? Like I just started to wonder about the other options, which I didn't ask about at the time because to me (laughs) Mm. staying home and being able to have her at home was was what I wanted. I didn't want to go go back to the hospital in, in any circumstance. So yeah. Yeah, at the time I I said yes and, um, yeah, later, you know, but what I was trying to say about trust is, um, you know, all my what-ifs about should I have moved or changed positions, 
I have to trust that she would have told me mm. or suggested those things if she thought they would have helped. And I think that she definitely would have before going straight to a episiotomy. 100%. Because, you know, she did tell me that she would count on one hand the number of episiotomies she'd done at home in 20 years. And, um, and so I got the impression this, you know, she would not have suggested it yeah. if it wasn't what was needed or, yeah, in the immediate moments I had no regrets about it. While they were getting ready for it, I had another contraction and gave, I thought, oh, maybe this is, you know, I'd read about, um, was it an Inuit culture where they have this thing where they scare the woman? Where she's in transition, like wow. because that rush of adrenaline is sometimes what's needed to get the baby out. Mm. And I thought maybe this is my chance because, like, you know, one last yeah. try. Mm. And I put everything I had into that one, and and she still didn't come out. So I thought, okay. And then I felt comfortable enough with it to to do it. So the only shit thing about that was, I mean. I'm lucky, I think, after having that and when Bronte was a bit older, learning about episiotomy and the damage it can do, I feel lucky that I escaped that. Mm. Um, you know, maybe it's got a lot to do with the provider doing the procedure. But um, they gave me, um, you know, the numbing sort of injection and as soon as she did the episiotomy, Bronte came out like it was really quick mm. and the midwife said to me that she it, she thinks it was just the perineum holding her in I was kind of shocked by that but in the photos you can see on the back of her head this ring shape mm. where she'd been crowning for so long and it wasn't on center it was all sort of off to the side and also the depth of her head like a very <laughs> very deep oddly <laughs> shaped head <laughs> <laughs> and it still is very like it widens at the back and so I think after seeing those photos it even made me feel even more okay with it um but yeah it was really quick and and then I was holding her and um my midwife said she was concerned about the amount of blood loss and that she thought it was possible she'd cut an artery or something in the episiotomy wow I and, missed all that oh did you yeah, yeah. And that's news to me <laughs> yeah and so that's why they had to do the syntocin uh-huh. um so I didn't get I didn't get my physiological third stage mm. um which sucks and we didn't get all the delayed cord clamping that I wanted because of that so yeah that that's one thing that I'm kind of sad about but um it was still much more than Georgia got can only assume um but as it turns out it wasn't like I, I think when I sat back on the ground the pressure of me sitting stopped the bleeding and it, and it wasn't that bad so regrets about that but in the scheme of things that was minor um because yeah I got to have her at home and it was great and it wasn't in the pool like I thought and mm. you know Georgia wasn't right there with me like I thought but I think I'd let go a bit by that stage of having to control every aspect of it and it was the outcome that I was yeah. wanting, not necessarily all the bits leading up to it. 
so I felt great and oh so relieved and Mm. just yeah now I could lay back and look at her and she just I I think I don't know if she cried when she came out I remember she fell asleep pretty quickly in yeah. my arms, or at least it looks like it in the pictures. Yeah, I don't think she mm. did cry because I remember asking you for a, a MP3 of her crying so that I could insert it into your yeah, video. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was, yeah, she was just calm and she was looking around. It was so, the thing that struck me the most was the difference, like how alert she was compared to Georgia. Yeah. Because, I mean, it makes sense. Georgia was so had all the drugs she had the morphine and the general anesthetic and then was just tubed up to everything plus she was so little and being fed and fed and fed yes yeah being overfed um by the nurses yeah and and so I look at videos of Georgia as a baby in the NICU and she's just like if she's moving her head that's the most she moves Mm. and sort of opening her eyes it was she was very like still but Bronte was looking around and you know Mm. yeah it was really it really struck me that difference and yeah um I I answered a question the other day what was the best part about home birth and, and I think there was lots of things but being able to sleep in my own bed was the best um Agreed. Going into my own bathroom, like, yeah, it was just not having to go anywhere. And we pretty much didn't go anywhere for a couple of weeks. Like, it was great. And um, she slept in my bed that night and has every single day since. (laughs) Um, Yeah, so it was really, it's hard to explain that feeling, like, unless you've you've had that feeling yourself it was just like I'd I'd done I'd done it you know yeah had the baby and it was really good how did you feel afterwards because I know like after my home birth I just felt like untouchable Mm. like I just felt so powerful you know it was I could not explain it to anyone I just felt like amazing yeah 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 I mean I was physically really sore for ages like I think I sat on ice packs for months Mm. because um I I don't know whether it's a combination of the episiotomy and sitting like squatting and crowning for so long Mm. but I was really sore and um there was one point I don't know how many days or weeks later where I felt one of the stitches pop I was like getting down on my knees and standing up and um yeah so it didn't um it didn't heal exactly right but and I, I was really concerned about that for ages like I, I it took me six months to go and see a women's physio about it and get some reassurance that everything was okay and some exercises to help because I had a slight prolapse like a, a second what do they call it grade two or something um, which she said is normal and okay and we managed to get it back to a one and, um, you know, through exercise and stuff. So that was really reassuring. But, yeah, I did feel that that same feeling, you know. And, yeah, it was just I remember going to work with the photos 
and showing people and sort of trying to explain it to them. And a lot of them were really shocked by the whole concept of it. But even more so when they, you know, going through the photos and they got to this placenta in a bowl, like I think most people who'd had babies had never seen their own placenta Mm. or any. And it was really, yeah, so there were moments like that where I was like, well, you guys are missing out, Mm. you know, or you have missed out. and. I think even some of them got that, I think a few of them might have said to me, oh, I wish I had photos like this. So, you know, they didn't even realise it was a thing, but they recognised the importance of it Yeah. because it helped me build my story as well, that the video and the midwives' notes and all of that because my own memory of it, you know, sort of fades, you know, over time. Yeah, yeah. And I would remember some parts really vividly and others, you know, I'd get the timing mixed up. I think that's normal. So when I when I wrote her birth story, it was um, – it's funny. I, I tend to rewrite both of them as time goes on, you know, like I've got maybe seven versions of George's one that depending on what phase I'm in of the process, like it might be really angry, really sad or really factual, mm, you know. yeah. Um, but yeah, Bronte's one, I must have told that story to, you know, people so many times, um, cause we had, you know, visitors come in the days following and yeah, it was, um, it was really just so different and good, um, in, by comparison, you know. How did Bronte's birth or did it, did it change your perspective on George's birth, like reflecting back on it or did it make you feel differently about George's birth I'm not sure I compared them obviously I mean well it's hard to because they're so different yeah like really for like I compared them as babies definitely and especially in that first you know seeing them and and the postpartum period was really all I could compare yeah you know um, it, you know, I did lots of thinking about George's birth afterwards, but I remember somebody asked me fairly, you know, not long after Bronte was born, did I find it healing? And it wasn't an immediate yes. It was like I think that came with time. Mm-hmm. It wasn't like mm-hmm. even though I felt really empowered and like I'd achieved this thing that I'd been wanting to achieve, I did it didn't you know I couldn't have said that yes it healed all of that and even now like it hasn't but I imagine how I would have been without it and I can sort of see that it has you know like it was healing in the sense that my body did its thing and even though I I think I might have mentioned last time I didn't have that doubt about my body like so many people do who who have a cesarean, especially I think a home birth transfer, I didn't have that sense of failure, but it was still nice. There's always that doubt, you know, until you've done it. And to say that I felt it and I felt all of it, like it was really important to me not to numb the pain. Like I got in the pool, but that was more to manage it. That that doesn't dull I mean, it doesn't get rid of it. No. And um, I, I think I needed to feel that 
to experience it fully. Yeah. Yeah, so I don't know the answer to that question really. I feel like healing subsequent births from secondary births that you've had comes when it's not so in your case what you would need healing from all of the things that went wrong it's like an injust for you that Mm. someone else has caused you it's not something it's not like your body failed or you just it's different you know like if you had labored and you just couldn't get there or something and then ended up with a c-section I can see how having a birth like Bronte's after that would heal that for you Mm -hmm. because you would have that validation of I can do it you know but you very well could have done it the first time if it hadn't have been for the, you know, mm. the rare complication that you had. And that's not that's not anyone's fault. That's just like one of those things, you yeah. know. Yeah, that's right. And maybe that's the reason why people say, you know, people who've had a traumatic birth like 30 years ago still feel it now. And I think I don't think you ever get rid of it, but maybe that's why it's still so raw sometimes is because, all of those things, those injustices and stuff are still happening to other people all the time. And because I'm in the advocacy space now and I see it and hear it, or I hear it more than see it, but, yeah, it's a reminder. Like it's, you know. Yeah. And I was saying to someone recently, like it's hard sometimes in advocacy, it, um, especially if you come across a story that, has similarities to yours, you know, it brings it all back and got to take a step back out of it. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I, it definitely was healing in a way, but I think, I think because I did so much work in the pregnancy too about, I didn't want to put that weight or that burden on this baby's or the birth. Like, I didn't want, you know what I'm trying to say? Like I didn't, I, I didn't want to have another baby and go through birth for the sake of healing the other one. Yeah. And so I kind of had let go of my expectations about that healing the previous one. Yeah. And so maybe that's why it wasn't an immediate feeling of, yeah. oh, I'm healed, you know. Um, But it was great. It was, yeah, it was really good just to say that I'd done it. Um, and for you to share your story for all other women hoping for either a H-back or a V-back yeah. to just more data, more to show them that it's possible, like, yeah, you know, that that's super important for other people. So many people that I spoke to, um, especially in my work, they would say to me, oh, I didn't know you could. I didn't know you were allowed to have, a, you know, a baby naturally after a cesarean. and and I was like, I I was a cesarean and you were a VBAC in the 80s. Like, True. hello, it's it's not new, <clears throat> um, but people are still being told you, that they can't. And this one guy at my work said, you know, his wife was told just the year before that she couldn't wow. have a VBAC. And so it was confronting for them hearing, like, you know, me telling them, well, yes, you can. <laughs> Like mm. heaps of people do it and telling them I've heard of people who've had VBACs after six cesareans. Like it's possible, but, yeah, they just don't um, question what they're being told by the professionals. So they, it was a shock to learn it later. 
from someone who'd done it. Like they couldn't deny mm. that it had happened. Um, yeah, so. And it really comes down to who you're choosing as your care provider and where you're giving birth. Yeah. And yeah. it does get harder and harder to be able to achieve like a, a H-back or a V-back the more cesareans that you've had, but still it comes down to your care provider. Yeah. And I think, I mean, I did talk to a lot of people about home birth after that, you know, um, indirectly, like through Facebook and, you know, you've got a lot of people on Facebook who you don't necessarily talk to all the time, like work colleagues and, you know, things like that. So I kind of hope that in that way the information's being spread um, or it was at least without being shoved down people's throats, you know, if you if you could see. Like I imagine if that was if that was me at the office and someone else who I'd worked with came in and was like showing me all their photos of their home birth and telling me about it, that that would plant a seed in my mind for when my time came, you know, and mm. how it could be to- just totally different from all the birth stories they'd heard, mm. you know. Yeah. And I remember when I was 40 weeks, we both went to our first positive birth movement m- meeting and it was a really hot day and, it, yeah, it was such a struggle <laughs> to get there. But I remember going to those meetings because they were pretty um, frequent thing for me after Bronte was born and telling the people there because that was a safe space to share your positive birth story um, where, you know, even on social media and stuff you get a lot of uh, projecting of people's own trauma onto you if you share and even in person, you know, you share your positive story, it could be dismissed as lucky or I got a lot of you're so brave that I had a home birth, you know, from extended family and stuff. Um, I don't know how many times I heard it and it annoys me really because brave implies that I took a risk, sort of flew by the seat of my pants, you know, like I I didn't do all the work beforehand to make that happen. Yeah. And I know there's an element of <clears throat> luck, I suppose, in birth, but yeah, that sort of statement was, you know, just not informed and not understanding what actually went into it. Um, it diminishes it a little. Yeah, I mean, I I brush it off because it's not as bad as at least you've got a healthy baby. <laughs> but, um, yeah, there was a lot of, oh, my baby would have died if I'd um, had her at home or, you know, all that stuff, <clears throat> which got to choose your battles. <laughs> I don't, yes. I don't often turn around to them and say, well, you know, with a different care provider and different information and different everything, you would have had a different outcome, guaranteed. And this is exactly what my psychologist was saying to me in Bronte's pregnancy. Like, no matter what, it's not going to be the same birth. Like, it's just not. Everything's different. You're different. You know different things. Um, You've got a different plan. Like, you know, even though it was still at home, I had, it was still a different plan. You know, it was more fluid. It wasn't, you know, so rigid. And so she said, even if, like, you know, even if it happens that you do go to hospital and you do need another cesarean, it's still going to be different. Um, And so 
that was comforting because, um, yeah, I think, you know, it's funny when when you've had one experience, you kind of, I, I was kind of expecting something similar to happen. Like I said before, I was expecting those rare, you know, one in a thousand things sort of to happen. But it's the same with babies. People are always surprised when they have another baby how different that baby is to the first baby. Like, you know. I was. Yeah. And I think that's the same with birth too. Like they're not, you don't birth the same because your baby is not the same and yeah, everything's different, Yeah, you know. So, yeah, it was, um, yeah, it was different being able to share a positive experience with people. Um, I really liked that. I still like talking about it and, yeah, um, no one's ever really shut me down, which is good because some people you know, that I've encountered have said, you know, they're too afraid to share their positive story because um, the people they're sharing it with are so still wounded from their own negative ones, they're not ready to hear it and it yeah. triggers them and so they, you know, shut it down, which Yeah, is sad. it is sad. Yeah. There's a place for both. I think both are needed. Yeah, I think, um, yeah, you're right, like they both are needed but, yeah. <clears throat> After that, I just wanted everybody to have the same experience that I'd had. Um, and that's what got me into advocacy in the end. Um, I think I would have jumped into it a lot sooner if I didn't, if it wasn't for my own internal feelings of not belonging to the home birth community, you know? Yeah. Like I probably would have gotten involved before Bronte's birth if I could get over my shit about about that you know yeah because I didn't really like there was nothing that happened though that anyone said to me that made me feel unwelcome it was my own oh I haven't had a home birth yet so I'll just yeah. wait until I've had one and then I'll get into this yeah I, I know photographers who don't feel worthy of photographing home births because they've all they've had is c-sections like that mm. that imposter kind of yeah. syndrome is really hard to get past yeah. And you're right, it is all your own shit. Like no one else cares, you know. Yeah. There's plenty of midwives out there who haven't had babies. Yeah, that's they true. They still provide, you know, class A care. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, so, I mean, I, it wasn't, she wasn't too, I think she was a couple of months old when um, my midwife asked me. Uh, they were developing a publicly funded home birth program at the hospital that I had Georgia at. And they asked, and they needed a consumer. So she asked me if I'd be interested, and I straight away said yes. And um, and part of that was before before I could do that, I had to go into the hospital to have a meeting with the midwifery staff. And so while I was there, they wanted to know about my experience at Westmead, and I was like, how much do I tell them? Because I like, want them to accept me. Yes, but I want to be, be truthful. This, yeah, I want to be on this thing. But um, if I bash your hospital too much, you might not let me. And I did want to improve things there, you know. But um, I was pretty honest with them. And I was surprised because they were really empathetic and validated a lot of my a lot of things that happened, you know, mm. they they acknowledge that they, that there is an issue with well with some of the staff and the way that they treat people and that they've heard this from other patients or consumers and so 
that was nice. So I was worried I was going to get dismissed because I had no proof. You know, it's just my own experience. Um, but they didn't do that. And so I've always felt like I still do stuff for them pretty regularly. And I've always felt listened to and like my opinion is worth something yeah. there, which is really good. But yeah, that was a good experience sitting in that room because <laughs> I was in that room with like there were two midwives that I knew. One was mine and another from the same group practice. And then the obstetrician who delivered Georgia was on the same committee. And so it was kind of, but it was great. I took Bronte with me to all the meetings and um, yeah, I mean, it was my first taste of doing consumer stuff anyway, consumer rep stuff. Did you enjoy it? Yeah, it was good. I mean, I don't feel like I made any massive impact in that particular one. Um, I feel like the midwives who were there probably could have. There are a couple of instances where my opinion on something was different to everyone else's in the room, you know. Mm. Um, and it's good because the program, even though it's still very restrictive, it's slightly less than others. And I think that definitely was a lot to do with the 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 influence of the private midwives who were on the committee but you know they would they they made an effort to involve me and ask me questions and make sure I understood all the medical jargon and it was really interesting learning about how it works because I'm using that now and plan to in the future to to get more people and more hospitals to do that yeah so yeah it was interesting to learn that they sort of they seemed to make up their own rules, really. Like there was no no list of things and restrictions that this program has to have coming from the government or Department of Health or anything. It was what do we want to do? Mm. What do we feel like? It was basically what we, what can we get away with to get this program over the line? Right. That's what it was. And so there was one point where they were talking about whether or not to allow VBACs and no publicly funded home birth that I know of does um, right. allow VBACs. And that is just a hang-up and a fear that, you know, the doctors on the committee and the hospital management themselves have about VBAC. So um, it didn't get over the line and they were like, well, look, what do we want? Do we want the program to be up and running or do we want to potentially lose it all if we push for this mm. but they did say you know after a year or so of being in operation we'll touch on that again so I remember that and I'll be asking them about it for sure mm. I think that the fact that there's a pro there's even a program up and running at all is a positive it's such a yeah it's such a tough thing because they're right like all the red tape and and all the you know it almost didn't get over the line at all anyway because mm. even after all that it was I got in very late in the process like I think it had been going for maybe one to two years before I came in mm. and so you know that it, it was about that time that that um, consulting with consumers became a compulsory thing that hospitals have to do right and so I think this hospital was is pretty ahead of the game in that regard compared to others in Sydney um 
they wanted to and they do make an active effort to get people in on all the committees and stuff. Um, so, yeah, I missed a lot, but there was a point where, you know, everything was done, all the meetings were finished and it was waiting for signatures and it kind of stalled and they needed a bit of a consumer push to get that going. And so, yeah, I did and it and it happened and, it, and it's good. Um, it's up and running now, even though it is only servicing low-risk women, it's better than nothing. And, you know, I think that we have to start... A lot of people write them off as being, you know, they're no good because it's basically just a hospital birth in your home environment, you mm. know what I mean? Like, and I understand what they're saying and if I had the choice I probably wouldn't birth through a publicly funded program. If You know, if I could afford a private midwife and there was one in my area I'd choose that because I know how good that is but Mm. for a lot of people that's not an option at all they can't afford it um they're they're too far away from or there's no midwives in the area you know what I mean like yeah so those programs fill that need that you know the low socioeconomic areas and things like that where you could you could argue that they need it more you know the continuity and the high-risk women, like it would be great if high-risk women could access that because there's not even any many MGPs that I'm talking about hospital birth MGPs that, yeah. all, that allow high-risk women. So, yeah, we've got a long way to go. But I think they're needed and, like, they're a necessary part of getting home birth to more people Yeah, um, faster. And spreading the word, you know their experiences yeah. plant seeds with all of their friends and family and yeah. normalizes it. I think that's the key is normalizing it. Yeah. Normalize you know, it however it. you get there, it's just normalizing home birth yeah. as a valid option. That's what I was going to say. It validates home birth like as a safe option, because if people learn, Oh, this is through a hospital, then it must be safe. <laughs> like yep. this is the, that was my main argument to get my home birth over the line. Yeah. Was well, it's publicly funded. Yeah. Can't be that unsafe. Yeah. You know, and it yeah. changes people's perspective. Yeah. To be like, oh, okay. Yeah. And I think with that change in perspective um, and awareness, and um, the more women that you have experiencing a positive birth, like this is exactly why they don't want, like they the the patriarchy, the government, they don't want women birthing in their power because once you have, you don't take their fucking shit anymore, mm-hmm. you don't listen, you know what I mean? You trust yeah. your body more, you you start to question everything and they don't want that. Yeah. They want compliant little stay-at-home mums who swallow their feelings and live with the grief for the rest of their lives. Yeah, You know, they don't offer any... There's no support for birth trauma. There's no government support or widely accessible support, you know. And it's even there's such a stigma attached. Like, you know, the the well-meaning things that people say to you who they just it's just another way of shutting you down, you know. So if there were more people who'd experienced the home births and spread, you know, once you've had one, it's pretty hard to shut up about it. It's pretty hard not to tell everyone you know how great it was. It really is. And, um, yeah, I think the more women you can get through those, even 
even the, if they're just the low risk ones, um, the better. You know, it's only going to help the cause in general. To me, um, you know, after having, I still feel like I'm a baby in this whole um, advocacy game because there are people who've been in it for like, you know, their whole careers, like 20 years, and and it's just more of the same shit. Not much has changed. It's depressing when you when you think of it that way. But yeah, um, yeah, I think that those those programs are a really important part of getting it out to the masses and helping, like you said, changing the public's perspective about home birth. Yeah, you know, not just not just home birth. I think that things like birth centers and stuff like that and MGP programs are just as important because for women who may not feel comfortable birthing at home but mm. still want an unassisted physiological birth, you know, they still have that the feeling that you get after a home birth of feeling like I did it, I did it on my own. Yeah. I've seen women have that feeling in hospital where they've had a birth centre or MGP program where they know the midwife and it's just that feeling of knowing that you can do it on your own still spreads the awareness of mm you know, being in hospital, if you feel safest in hospital, then that's definitely where you should give birth. But it doesn't totally. mean that you don't have options, you yeah, know? Totally. Yeah, exactly. Like I know, and this is one thing that grinds me the wrong way, when in home birth groups you, you see a, a woman say, oh, I really want to have a home birth, but this, this and that, um, and people recommend just have a free birth. It's potentially dangerous because it takes a certain mindset to birth at home like when covid was around like when covid first came up and there was a sudden influx of inquiries for home birth i know some midwives were like of course they were happy that home birth is on people's radar but also wary because some of those women probably shouldn't have been birthing at home because they're not they haven't done the work beforehand you know you have to feel confident and not fear birth and I mean you can't just go from planning to birth in hospital and planning to have all the drugs and you know all that stuff because that's what all your friends have done and all your family have done and probably what you've done for previous births to birth at home now yeah especially late in the pregnancy that's not enough time to really process and I know some people had really good experiences with that and it's not like a rule for everyone but it's the same with free birth like there are some people who are so traumatized by their hospital experience that you know even though they might feel safer birthing with a medical professional there and their preference is to do it at home if they can't access that medical professional for whatever reason they'll just go it alone and take that risk rather than go into hospital. And I think that's a really different situation to someone who mindfully chooses free birth, not from a place of fear. Yeah. They choose it from this is for the same reasons I chose home birth. This is what vibes with me and I'm not doing it because I have no other option. I'm doing it because that's my preferred option. Yeah. That's really different. Yeah. And I think they're probably more likely to have a positive outcome because they're not fearful and they probably understand the process of birth better because when you I was talking to someone who'd free birthed three of her babies a few weeks ago and I was like it must just take such trust 
in yourself and your baby and your and the the process and surrender yeah. to do that. And she said, yeah, you have to be so tuned in to your intuition and that takes work because in, in general we're not. No. We ignore it on a daily fucking basis. And to so that's what I mean by the work, you know. Yeah. And that's not something you can do at 38 weeks pregnant mm. when you've been planning for epidurals and the lot the whole time. Yeah, it, it it bothers me when I see that because you're right, there are some people who really should be birthing in hospital because they're not there yet or yeah. that's what they want. Yeah. <laughs> as simple as that. Yeah. Um. And so this is why, like, even though I'm like a really strong home birth advocate, I am also trying to improve things in the hospital as well because like me, there are people who plan a home birth and have to go to hospital. Yeah. And I don't want them to have a shit time. But I also don't want all the other people who choose hospital to have a shit time. Yeah. You know, you can have an empowering experience. And that's what I want, more people to have that empowering experience no matter where they are. Yeah. Because that just fuels the movement, you know. We've got people, you know, who do um, volunteer stuff for, home birth New South Wales who'd never had a home birth that it's not a prerequisite they don't have to have they just have to have a common goal you know recognize the importance that it's accessible for people yeah yeah and maybe they would have had one if it was accessible yeah um and maybe they will for future babies if they have them it's just you know Mm. I think um I think there's there's like two types of advocates that I've encountered there's ones like me who've had a really shit experience and want to make it better, and there's others who had the best births and can't believe that that isn't what everybody gets. Like, yeah. So it's the same thing driving them. It's yeah. really you want others to have what you had or you didn't have. Or better. Yeah, you want better. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, yeah, so there's a lot of overlap between home birth advocacy and just general birth advocacy because, like, especially talking about publicly funded home birth, which I really think is the way and it's also the thing that is easiest to influence. Mm. I mean, all the shit that's going on right now with the government and this extension to that insurance exemption ending this year, like... It feels like we do this every couple of years, sit around and and wait for them to make this announcement and then we can keep going. And in the meantime, home birth is still a risky thing for the midwives attending it and the women doing it because they're not covered for the birth part by insurance. So I just think it's, yeah, it's, um, it's something that is harder to fix. You feel really helpless addressing that problem because... We've been trying to get in on the conversation and get them to consult with home birth consumers about this insurance and the whole thing, and they're just not listening. Mm. Whereas going to my local hospital and building relationships with the staff there and getting to know how their MGP works, suggesting improvements, like it's a slow thing, but that is something that we can all do now. And there are existing publicly funded home birth, home birth programs which are functioning uh, really badly because they're understaffed and 
and so on, which people can get in on and start yeah. improving. Yeah. You know, yeah. It's only in the last year that I started to focus more on that because I just got so sick of sitting around and waiting and not knowing what's going on yeah. and not having any influence. And, yeah, you need a few small wins to keep you going or yeah. you just give up. What is What do you feel is the biggest roadblock to or biggest issue for home birth in I was going to say Australia but that might not be, might not be more relevant for you like in where we are in New South Wales or Sydney um <clears throat> you mean home birth like at home with a midwife yeah um not through the hospital yeah mm. I think probably the cost um so accessibility yeah and the number of midwives, the, the availability, like mm. they just book out so fast. Yeah. And if you don't already know about it before you fall pregnant, you you are likely to miss out. Mm. And it's the same with the MGPs in, in the hospitals around here. There's a waiting list. Mm. And sometimes it's about who you know, whether you get a spot or not, which is really <clears throat> shit. Um, so, yeah, there's just... With pub, with with private midwives, it's hard. I mean, it takes a lot of work to be able to go out into your own private practice. I think they have to be really, really, really driven. And once they're out there, like I know a midwife who's who's just starting a private practice and already has people booked up. You know, yeah. and the demand is there, the supply isn't, and the support for the midwives isn't there either. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I think, um, and every now and then you have a midwife retire or pull out a private practice, which, you know, I think over the years the, the numbers have dwindled at somewhere around 200 to 250 in the country now. Wow. Which isn't a lot, you know. And that's why I think it's important. Another reason why publicly funded is important because you're exposing the hospital midwives to home birth. Mm. Um, and everything they've seen and learned and done is challenged by what they witness at a home birth. I had a trainee attend my home birth because it was a publicly funded home birth program. Yeah. And I saw her a couple of days after my birth and she was just, she felt how I felt mm. about, she was like glowing and mm. like, oh my God, like she'd mm. never seen anything like that before, yeah. you know? And I put the call out once on my Instagram to midwives about how many midwives had seen a physiological birth and a fi- like true phys- and like minimal, mm. minimal. The numbers were like dismal. Yeah. Yeah. It's really sad because um, some hospitals have a policy that they'll do like a managed third stage that unless the woman specifically says they don't want that. And that's a very small minority of the women who birth in that hospital. So you could be a midwife working there for like 10 years and never see one. But if you start going out to home birth program, um, home births and, and they're also being mentored by private midwives who've been in it for a long time as well. So they're sharing a lot of knowledge about normal birth with those. I don't, I don't think any harm can come from that. I think the more trainee midwives who get, to, who get to see a home birth, the better because, and it should be a part of their training. I was going to say, it should be a requirement that they attend X amount of home births. It should be. And there's no, like, I don't know, 
I don't personally know any private midwife who would knock that back yeah. because um, they there's a shortage of them. And because the stupid rules say there has to be two midwives at every home birth, there's, you know, there are or there were before that rule came in midwives who would operate in regional areas just on their own but now they need to if they can't find a second they can't do home births yeah you know yeah there's so many barriers for the midwives to actually do their job properly um that could be removed and people are advocating like really pushing for them to be removed um also like pushing to make home births cheaper for women yeah who you know make it more affordable um when you compare it to private obstetric care, it's pretty similar. Yeah. But it's hard to explain to people the value in it, like, you know, mm. unless you've done it yourself. Um, so it's really not it's not the most expensive care that, you know, that you, but it just makes people walk. And there are people who just can't afford it. Yeah. It's plain and simple. Yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of things that people can do to to make it better. Um, but there are a lot of overlaps. I think also education is a, a huge part because yeah. lots of women will go out and spend $3,000 on a pram, $1,500 on a brand new cot and things like that yeah. when the investment should be in, if not in your birth, in your postpartum care minimum, yeah. you know, in things that are going to make life for you after baby easier. Yeah. And I think that maybe that's got something to do with society's downplaying of the importance of birth. Like it's not just a day in your life. It's and and it's the same with all major milestones in a woman's life. They're downplayed. The importance of them is, you know, except for weddings. You know. Yeah. Like it's because it's a money maker. Yeah. Yeah. Probably. Yeah. Right. <laughs> like it's it's people blow so much money on flowers at a wedding. Um, but when it comes to five grand for a home birth, they're like, oh, no, because they don't understand the importance of that and they mm. don't until they've done it. Yeah. That's, just, that's the really shit thing. Like, it is. You don't, they almost have to learn the hard way because you can tell people that, that you know, it it's doesn't... so deeply ingrained in everyone Yeah. that they don't get it until they get it. Mm. <laughs> you can't push it on, on people, I suppose, but, like, I'm all for planting little seeds, you know, rather than pushing it on people. It's, yeah. They have to come to their own realisation, what's important to them. And to some people, like I know lots of people who regret not getting a doula or not getting a photographer because they didn't understand the importance of it and I almost didn't want to do it. Yeah. <laughs> like you had to convince I had to convince you. <laughs> I was one of those people where, you know, and I, I don't really understand what was holding me back other than I just didn't get the importance of it even mm. though it sounds stupid me saying that because I know what type of birth I wanted and yeah. how how special those photos would have been to me of George's birth because I would have felt involved in it if yeah. I had them even after all that I still mm. didn't really want to do it yeah I come across this all the time in yeah. women are more than happy to fork out money to get family photos done yeah. because it's not it's not about them it's not just for them mm. women will get newborn photos done and pay exorbitant prices to get newborn photos done because it's not about them it's about the baby it's about the family but when it comes to documenting the birth it's a selfish decision mm. and that's how it's perceived and that's how a lot of women feel about it it's it's something 
for them. And it is a hundred percent. It is, it's just about them, but it's that it's the guilt, the mum guilt, mm. you know, of not wanting to fork out the money. Like they won't fork out money to do maternity photos. Cause that's just about them, but a family photo or anything like that is totally fine. You know? Yeah. Doesn't that say a lot about the whole, we put ourselves last. Yeah. Yeah. But before you even become a mum, you're already putting yourself last. Yeah. It's all about the baby. Yeah, exactly right. And it's the same thing, like the huge difference between a traditional baby shower and a mother blessing. Like, right. They are chalk and cheese. And it's okay to be the centre of attention and have it all about you. Like, if you are a first time mum and you've, Cho- you've done your research and chosen your model of care that you want and you you have like something like a mother blessing and you invest in a doula who is there to just look after you like you're set mm-hmm. your your introduction to motherhood is going to be great you know like it's almost become a part of the process that like they've even normalized the baby blues now um, just because something is common doesn't mean it's normal. Yeah. And, you know, you can't even complain about feeling depressed and tired and run down because the response from people is that's just what it's like. Mm. You can't complain about a bad birth because at least you've got a healthy baby mm. and that's just what birth's like. It's not meant to be all sunshine and roses. Like it can be. Yeah. And yeah. it probably should be. It yeah. should be. Yeah. You know, but yeah. it's just, yeah, breaking down that stupid expectation that people have even from when they're children so I would argue that birth photography isn't just important for the mum it's important for her kids as well Mm. because we need to teach them that birth can be beautiful and it it, it's not something you have to grin and bear you know it it can be such a life-changing thing well it always is no matter which way it goes you know but it can be for the better and, um, you know, that will hopefully make some difference to changing the next generation's views around it. Yeah. So, yeah, I would argue it to them that way. It's not just about you. It's about your kids. You yeah. want your kids to have good birth experiences. I try to preach about the healing properties of um, birth photography and I've even not having yet delivered the photos, I've seen the healing benefits of just birth, like mm. of a um a woman giving birth and her mum being present and the healing that happens to the the grandmother, like the mum of her own births. Like if you can heal upwards that way, it certainly can change the, you know, societal expectations down, down the line. Oh yeah. You know? Yeah, exactly. And outwards, like all the people they tell about it and the photo, you know, like, yeah, that's, you're right. That's, um, that's really important. The kids will talk to their friends and, you know, mm. like I'm waiting for the day and I know this might also be an objection people have with birth photography is, well, I didn't do it for my first, you know. Like I still have that, you know, oh, what if Georgia asked me for photos about her birth and, you know, I've got all these ones of Bronte and how will I explain that to her? But she knows that her birth was different. Um and I tell her that I was born the same way. And yeah. just the other night, um, actually, we were laying in bed and that came up somehow. I can't remember how, but I told her, and I'm pretty sure I've told her before, but she must have forgotten, 
that I was born the same way that she was and she was like so happy <laughs> that we had that in common and I am really careful not to talk about um, her birth as a negative experience in front of her and I know one day like she'll be old enough to get it but um, and I think that's okay as long as she understands it's not her fault it's not my fault it's just one of those things that happened it's just an age-appropriate discussion yes you know. yeah yeah she's far too young I think to understand it at the moment but it might have been coming on two years ago now or maybe I feel like it might have been during lockdown, so maybe a year, year and a half. I started to think about her birth story and how to spin it in a positive way because at Steiner School, you know how they do the birthday story and you've got to write down, um, you know, before I was born and you've got to write a little bit about their birth and stuff. I was really struggling with how to, like, what to say. And, and the same in her baby book. You know, like mm. we've got a baby book for both of them, and I'm like, oh fuck, what have I, I left that section blank for ages and ages because it it took years and years and years for me to even want to think, uh, want to find any positives. But like, I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing <clears throat> now if if it didn't happen. Yeah, you know, like I don't I don't know whether I would have been one of those people who had great experiences and that fueled me into advocacy. I don't think <clears throat> so. I think because it's not my first go at advocacy either. Like I've always yeah. been in something and it's always been injustice and stuff that's fueled me. You're fueled by fire. Yeah, like it's always been the underdog, whether it's people, animals, the environment, it's always been um, sad shit that motivated me mm. to to do the work, you know, mm. and I remember when I was into all that animal rights advocacy, like I would seek out those videos of, you know, like I would just see them, make myself watch it because I want to know the truth and that will fuel me, you know, and so I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing without that experience and, um Definitely not in the birth trauma space. Like that takes, I think, a personal experience to be able to empathise with what other people have gone through. And I found that with my, you know, when, when I had counselling, that connection with, you know, knowing that she'd, she'd gone through a similar thing to me was really important. I wouldn't have been able to take it seriously if it came from someone who had great <laughs> wouldn't have yeah been the same well you want to be seen and heard and you know, someone can hear you but they can't see you if they haven't been there yeah you know? yeah they can't they can't possibly fathom what it was like you know like you can imagine and I still feel that you know I try really hard not to compare trauma mm. but that I come across stories from of people who've really had like such a bad time um physically and mentally like it's affected every aspect of their lives and they're still recovering from it and affects mm. their future births and mm. like some horrible horrible stories mm. um but my little taste of it can help me empathize mm. with them you know so yeah there's lots of um 
like I'm aware of lots of people who are sharing their, I feel like I would use the word journeys too much, but it makes you feel validated knowing you're not the only one Yes, and that this is how this person is dealing with it and these are the resources they found helpful and so on. I think when it gets to a point where that person is still wallowing in it, like I, I'm not suggesting that people should just get over it because they don't, but there's got to be some growth from it or what's the point, yeah. you know, like I heard a saying once, can't remember where it came from, um, something about every birth you have is the birth you need. That was hard to swallow the first time I heard that because I was like, what the fuck do you mean I needed this, you know, like, but it makes you start to find or look for things in there that you did need. Yeah. Like lessons. Yeah. And I think every birth does teach you a lesson. Um and so I started to think about what George's was teaching me and um, I still don't have, like, a, I've got a vague idea. So I'm not at the point where I can say, oh, yeah, these are all, you know, positive things, but I'm getting there. I'm like, you know, it taught me to uh, be less rigid, you know. Yeah. Like it's more about the outcome or the destination than it is, um, about how you get there. Um, yeah, it's a tough one with that. <laughs> That's a lifelong yeah, yeah. thing. It might take ages, but I remember the <clears throat> day that I started to think of positives and I'm like, oh, wow, if I wasn't, if I didn't have that experience, I would not be able to relate to all these other people who yeah. had um, traumatic births and maybe through what I'm doing with, um, bringing that perspective to when I go to a meeting at a hospital with someone and it could be about their MGP or some other program or it could be about birth education. I'm bringing that, like, trauma-informed perspective to that and being like, you can't use those words. Those words are dismissive. Those words are hurtful. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, that's a super important contribution. Yeah, I feel like it's um, even just sharing the negative stories is important. Um, I think I spoke last time about, you know, how you've got to choose your audience, you know, mm. like you don't walk into a hypnobirthing class and share, your, <laughs> you know, your traumatic birth story. But yeah. um, definitely with um, it's made me more compassionate for other people who, you know, like when I was pregnant with Georgia, they would unburden their negative stories onto the my friend who was pregnant at work. I I don't I'm not dismissive of their stories now. Even people who come at you with, oh, you're just lucky, you know, my baby would have died, blah blah blah. Like I can see that that's coming from their trauma. Yeah, people who are very vocal about how dangerous they think home birth is and so on I can see that's coming from their trauma yeah. you know it's not you don't get so fucking riled up about a topic mm-hmm. you know that is that doesn't have any deep meaning to you there's something behind it yes and you know uh I remember spending hours getting into arguments with 
people on <laughs> social media about, um, you know, is home birth safe, is it not, blah, blah, blah. I'm beyond that now. Like it's the evidence is out there for anyone who wants to find it. Medical medical lobbyists will continue bloody pretending that it doesn't exist and pretending that hospital's safest for most people and blah, blah, blah. But it will catch up eventually. Like with every single person that has a baby on their terms, it's getting there. Yeah. You know, um, they're just hanging on for dear life because they don't want their, you know, they don't want people refusing to do what they're told and, refusing the epidurals and affecting their income and so on. So, yeah, it's um, I think it's, what did I hear someone call it, a forever game advocacy in, you know, in any kind of health area. Mm-hmm. Um, it totally is. So, yeah. <laughs> what would you say to people looking to get into advocacy, um, birth advocacy, home birth advocacy? Uh, well, there's lots of different ways. Like if home birth is your thing, then there's um, home birth organisations you can get in touch with, like um, Home Birth New South Wales or Home Birth Australia. Um, I know Home Birth Queensland. Like there's, there's other smaller groups scattered around um, the country, but those are the three main organisations. I think there's one in Melbourne in the process of getting started up again. Um, they always need help with the practical volunteer stuff, like someone to do their social media, someone to help with websites, you know, Mm. fundraising, all that sort of stuff. Um, or you can just do focus in your own backyard. Like I'm really trying at the moment to recruit people who are willing to join the consumer council at their hospital. Um, because maternity is so underrepresented. Now that it is a requirement for hospitals to have consumers involved with every single thing. So if they want to introduce a new program, they have to have a consumer on it. Wow. And um, like it could be new birth education classes or breastfeeding. It could be a fact sheet that they want to be available on their website. They have to have a consumer look at it. Some hospitals are way, way behind I think you'll probably find the ones in the bigger cities, like the bigger hospitals are probably more on top of it. But it, you can just Google this thing called Standard 2. It's um, it's available, you know, on the internet. You take it to your hospital. That's why you want to meet with them. Cause, and I think, to be honest, most hospitals will be relieved that you've saved them the work of finding someone. Yeah. You know, if yeah. they, if someone, this is what I found with our hospital, our closest big hospital, they were relieved that me and and the the woman who went with me two passionate maternity advocates just showed up at their door and wanted to be involved because they know they have to do it but they're just like so might be so low on the priority list for them because they are overworked and underpaid so there's is there no way you can register as like a consumer rep or something like that You've got to go onto your health district's website. Okay. Um, and it's different in every state. In New South Wales, they call them local health districts. Um, I think they're called something different in every other state. But, um, you know, if you just Google your hospital, yeah, um, it should take you to your LHD website. And yeah. there should be a section on get involved or consumer representative. Like I just do a word search on the whole site 
because sometimes they're really hard to find. Like I was looking for it on the Northern Sydney website a couple of months ago and it was near impossible to find it. Mm. I had to dig through minutes of old meetings and stuff to find reference to a consumer committee and if in doubt, like call them, call the hospital. Yeah. There's usually a patient liaison officer at a hospital who will be able to tell you if they don't know, search on the website. Yeah, it's it's a pretty straightforward process. I think every hospital deals with it, every LHD deals with it differently. Like Western Sydney is great because they have lots of information on the website. So you, you get a lot of your questions answered before you even need to contact them. I contact people who I speak to in Facebook groups, you know, who say they want to get involved and they want to know what do you have to do. For me, like my home and two councils, they both meet monthly for a couple of hours and it's a Zoom call. You know, if I'm at home and I can, I sit on it and listen. And a lot of it's not maternity related at all. It might be about the hospital or in general or what's going on in the area, but I always find them useful. Wherever possible, I throw maternity in there. And I bring it back to that. And, yeah, you know, the, your level of involvement involvement is totally up to you. And anyone can do it. Yeah, yeah, anyone can do it. Like you don't have to have had a baby at that hospital. Yeah. You just need to have an interest in it. Um, some hospitals will be picky about, uh, well, are you from the area? What influence do you have in the area and so on? But in my experience, I've only... I've only come across one that's been like that and there's like one, two, three, four, five hospitals that I work with at the moment and mm. most of them are pretty keen to have you on board. You don't need to have any level of <clears throat> medical knowledge. You just te- you're just taking your own experience mm. and perspective into it. You don't need to be armed with stats about, you know, continuity or whatever. The first thing I'd, I'd try and do is get to know them and get let them get to know you because if they if they know you and what your motivations are and that your heart's in the right place they'll trust you they'll let you in because there's there is a perception in health that consumer reps are whingers and you know they've got a tough enough job as it is Mm. in their opinion they don't want you know someone whinging in their meetings yeah so I wouldn't go into it making demands Mm. um and the first time I actually tried that tactic um was a real lesson for me because I could see they they sort of let their guard down with me we were just having a conversation about birth and how things should be and they and the, the midwives I spoke to were on the same page as me and I really had empathy for them after this meeting because I could see how hurt they were and there there's so much red tape in hospitals like she was telling me they had to fight for several months just to get extra powerpoints installed in new birth suites in the new hospital that they're building like little things like that you know she wants extra powerpoints so people can plug in their diffusers and their chargers and things like that so they they're between a rock and a hard place I think you know some people are really critical of hospital midwives and I think you know rightly so in a lot of cases but I have a bit more empathy for them now knowing that they they don't get into that job to traumatize people no yeah no midwife does no it happens along the way like they get 
beaten down and restricted and they are bound by the policies that overhang their head, you know, and I'm the same. I went into my first couple of hospital births being like you're the enemy Mm. sort of thing. But over time, perspective, and I have lots of midwife friends now and I really feel for them, really feel for them. Totally. Because they, and I think it's a huge shock to their system when they learn that someone under their care feels yeah. traumatized. Yep. And that they had a part to play in it. Yep. Like, yeah, this one midwife I spoke to was um, uh, one of the midwives who debriefs women after their births. And they sort of hand pick the ones they think need the debriefing the most. So right. the ones that they can see are visually you know traumatized by their ordeal and I said to her it's great that you are debriefing them but who's debriefing you Mm -hmm. and they they just have no one they just swallow it and have to go back to work and do it all again the next day and I know that like such a fine line because I know that there are some it doesn't take much to be kind if a midwife you can get any medical staff who are just outright abusive and hearing me say that is going to make you feel, you know, dismissed. But they're not, yeah, what I'm trying to say is that I think they are the exception, you know. I think most most of the stories I've heard from people in our area about their trauma is it can all be tied down to short staffing and things like that. Like they're just too busy to yeah. spend the time with you. I'm yeah. Like that's not... There's no malice in that. That's just the reality of their job. Um, it just sucks that it has to have such a negative impact on the women and it stays with them for so long. Like I heard a story about a woman whose um, bed linen wasn't changed for three days and she pressed the buzzer and no one ever came. And that's that's just, you know, that's something that could be easily fixed though. Yeah. <laughs> you know, It's the system, not the people in it mostly, yeah, that's right. you know. And you need good midwives in the system. And so those ones that are good should be, like, supported and encouraged yeah. and not, not put down because, you know, yeah, anyway, it's a fine line. The number of midwife, hospital-working midwives that I know of who home birth themselves mm. speaks volumes yeah. about the system and how fucked up it is. Yeah. Like, they're working in the system. Yeah. They They love working the system because they know that, women in the system need them mm-hmm. but they choose to exit the system when it's time for them to birth their own babies yeah. like what what more can you say yeah. about whether home birth is safe versus hospital like they yeah. have first-hand knowledge you know yeah and they know very well that even if your best mate who works with you is on staff that day that a lot of the time it's out of their hands yeah um, yeah, it's not, you're just going to go, even if you go in there informed and armed to the teeth with, you know, backup, it's, yeah. it's not, yeah, not always possible. And, and they've seen the worst of the worst too. So, you know, that's not to say you can't do it in hospital. You can't have a good experience because lots of people do, mm. but, um, yeah, your chances are slimmer. So depending on what outcome you want, like, yeah. If you want to feel no pain and you want to go in and, and you know, lay it on the table and just happens to you, then that's, you know, go yeah. to the hospital. Yeah. That's what you'll get. But, yeah, I become less hospital bashy as well over time because you have to work with them to uh, make things better. Yes. Like 
there are, I think there's a place, you know, there's all these different types of advocates. There are those who um, refuse to work with anyone with, with hospitals at all. And I think that's okay too, because you've got to protect yourself and your own, I mean, you get a bit, you collect a little bits of trauma along the way every single time you attend a hospital birth. A hundred percent. And you've got to protect yourself and also be aware that you are bringing that to your next client, your next, the next woman who births with you or chooses you, you know. So I respect that and I think there's a place for those people. There's a place for the people who want to avoid hospital altogether and free birth. You know, there's a place for those who who want to birth in hospital, but it's if you want to make things better, like you've got to kind of swallow that and work with them. Yeah, it depends. It really does. I mean, if you, I'm not a birth worker. Yeah. So I'm not picking up that trauma yeah. at every birth I go to. And it's hard. It's really hard. Yeah. I think the key message is that you can just do what you can do at your capacity. Yes. You know, no one contribution is any less significant than the next. Like you contribute at a higher capacity than the next person would. It doesn't make the next person's contribution any less, yeah. you know. And if you decide, like I myself have had to scale back in the past on hospital births because I just couldn't do it anymore, mm-hmm. you know. And you're right, you do carry that forward to each birth that you attend and I want to give my all to each client and I just couldn't, yeah. you know. It just grinds you down. Yeah. You just contribute however you can at that point in time, whatever's going on in your life, yeah. you know, and if you decide that you can't do that anymore or this anymore, then, you know. Yeah, totally. It's the same with advocacy. Like there'll be times when there's so much going on in your own life or you're going through a period of just being really triggered by whatever, you know, has happened, that you need to take a break mm. and that's totally okay. Like we're lucky at the moment with you know with the home birth orgs that I'm in that we've built up enough of us that that's it doesn't make such a huge impact when someone has to step out Mm. and it happens every Mm. now and then and it's totally okay and there you know I didn't do anything in advocacy for pretty much the whole of 2020. I was I think most people were just feeling like what the fuck it's the end of the world you know just depressed and stuck at home and just not mm. you know yeah um and then at the beginning of this year it just came all back and and I've been you know doing heaps of shit and just you know like letting it all out again yeah. and that's okay and I'll probably burn out again one day <laughs> like it, it's just a cycle and that's fine and and we have to do the same thing even though we're not birth workers um you know like the first time I I went to this home birth, um, publicly funded home birth meeting at the hospital, I got out of the lift right outside the NICU and and I was like sweating and shaking just from the memory. And this was mm. three years later mm. of visiting Georgia in there and that's where a fair chunk of my trauma came from. Mm. And and it was surprising. Sometimes it just takes you, catches you off guard and, mm. and you've got to like... I love being able to zoom in now. I mean, A, you don't have to find a parking spot and I don't have to worry about childcare for the kids. You can, And they're totally accommodating yeah. for you to do that. Yeah. And that's one good thing about COVID, you know. Yeah, yeah. So I dial into all my meetings now. That's good. If, if I can and I just yeah. sit in the car or do whatever. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it's, it's good because I don't have to go to the place that, you know, I was traumatised at um, and, and 
that's that was really good. But yeah, I mean, there's lots of different ways you can get involved, um, and you don't have to commit to any long term thing. You can just follow consumer groups on social media and get involved in campaigns when they come across. I find it helpful be myself personally being in all these you know birth trauma Facebook groups and um, seeing what people are saying and if I can you know offer some words of support or share a resource that helped me like that's all part of it. Getting involved with the hospital I think we need more people to do that because yeah maternity is totally underrepresented and you know if you've got a publicly funded program or an MGP in your area that is not doing well don't complain about it Mm. like do something about it um and I hear it all the time from midwives at the hospital that consumer voices are so powerful and I think a bit of that is because well they they're 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 sort of gagged because they're working there they're worried about their careers there's lots of things they want to say and there are things that they they do say they're just not heard. Yeah. We have a bit more power, you know. There's the whole political side, which um, I'm not very knowledgeable about, um, but Maternity Consumer Network has heaps of guidance in that area. Yeah. And that's really needed too, like building a relationship with your MP, putting maternity care on their radar, sending them emails, going to events where they're at, like I was a bit annoyed I didn't go to that rally on the weekend when I saw that um, our MP was there uh, because I sent her three emails. I would have gone up to her and said, hey, <laughs> have you seen my emails about this? You know what I mean? Mm. Like just keeping it on their radar because yeah. that's how other people get shit done, you know. Um, yeah, there's lots of lots of things you can do. Yeah. You know, I get it. depends on what stage you're at if you've got a newborn baby there's Mm. limited things you can do yeah but yeah even even just liking and sharing things Mm. signing petitions online yeah like that is helpful yeah that is super helpful yeah you know and so easy yeah super easy yeah just like a couple of facebook groups yeah see the stuff that comes up and share and like yeah like some people you know go to go to mother's groups and it's part of your day-to-day anyway and you can talk to them about mm. stuff, share yeah. that birth experience survey, mm. you know, like I, yeah, wherever you can, drop, plant seeds, <laughs> you know, just walk around planting seeds everywhere and, yeah. and um, you know, not in a forceful way, just in a, oh, you know, like I'm in a pregnancy Facebook group um, because I want to see what they're talking about. Yeah. And every now and then someone will say, oh, my doctor told me this and I'll just drop in an article about gestational diabetes or whatever it is their concern is and yeah. just leave it there. Yeah. You know, they might read it. Other people might read it. Yeah. Who cares? I'm not yeah. going to tell them what to do. It takes nothing from you to do that. No. Yeah. Just like an alternative. Yeah. One thing you said before that I wanted to mention, something about, I can't remember exactly what it was, but, I was listening to an audio book once and it was about activism in general, more specifically about the environment. And and the guy, Charles Eisenstein. Oh, yeah. He said, um, I love him, he said He's really good. It doesn't matter what you're doing. It doesn't matter if you are 
working in a community garden in your small town or you're um, working to change some legislation about child slavery or whatever. It doesn't matter what you're doing. If, if you're doing something to change the world in some way, then you're helping all other causes. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like I'm not yeah. doing it much justice, but that quote made me, made, it really, all through 2020, I felt this sense of I have limited time. What should I, what is the most important issue mm. that I should be funneling my energy into? Mm. Is it the environment? climate change is at birth like I was really questioning everything I was doing and I started to feel like the work I was doing in home birth at the time was only benefiting middle class white women no one else yeah and and barely even any of them yeah you know what I mean like I felt like what the fuck am I doing I'm wasting my time here should I be focusing it all into this like I was trying to find that one thing that was the most important issue. And then I sort of had this realisation that, if anything, they all matter equally, but birth is so important because it's your start to life. It changes your direction. Like what's that saying? Heal the, heal the earth, heal the earth through birth. And it's yeah, so true. It is. It makes you aware of what's really important and, um, you know, we're just animals and, you know, that makes you a bit more compassionate for other animals and Mm -hmm. the environment in general and, you know, like it's just it is so important. And it's where it all starts. Yes, yes. But, yeah, like that one, that no matter what you're doing, it's helping everywhere, Yeah, you know. I think that's important and that helped me get out of my funk and be like, okay, at the end of the day it doesn't really matter what I do, let's just do what I feel most passionate about right now. And that's what you should do. Like if I change my mind in three months' time and I'm more into, I don't know, bushfire prevention or something at the time, then that's fine. Yeah. You know, it doesn't have to be specifically birth-related. It could be breastfeeding or it could be whatever. And it, I think it's important to note that it does come and go. Yeah, it like does. energetically, you you just can't go gung ho till the end of time on no. the one issue. You no. know, you have to be in tune with yourself and what you have the time and energy and space for yeah. to be able to put yourself into. And some things are less demanding than others. You know, totally. And I see it all the time. Like there's some consumer groups which are really thin on people, and if they or one of them has a moment where they need to step down, then it just presses pause on everything. Mm. But there's ways you can, like I'm all into succession planning now. Like I try and recruit new people at the hospitals I'm already working at because I want to pull out of that because I'm not in that area anymore. Mm. You know what I mean? I encourage them to take someone with them, like go in pairs so that the more experienced person is teaching the less experienced person. And you can tag team, you know, if yeah. your kid's sick, they can go. Yeah. Like it's, yeah, just use the people in your area. And in our area, I'm really lucky. I think there's so many people who are willing to do stuff and, you know, it's just a matter of getting them in there and, um, yeah, just keeping that in mind. Like I know I will have a, a moment where I need to step out again, like guaranteed. 
you can't keep it up at this pace forever. No. And everybody's got their own lives and mm. work and, and whatever, you know. It's um it's frustrating that consumer reps don't get paid. Like you be in a meeting with someone and you're the only one who's not getting paid, even though they need you there. Mm. And they're you're offering, you know, so there is a it doesn't hurt to ask. And at the very least, they should be paying for your parking and any expenses. Yeah. I've had people cover babysitting for me before so I could go to a meeting. You know, it doesn't hurt to ask. And, you know, I, I'm a bit picky now about what I do because if I don't think it's going to have an impact in some way, you know, I'll say no mm. or, you know, pass it on to someone else. Um it's okay to, to do that too. You don't have to say yes to everything. Yeah. Because as soon as you look into it, like there are opportunities everywhere wow. to get involved. Mm. There's a there's a bloody um, health consumers New South Wales website where people can post jobs where they need consumers for. There's a website called Ethical Jobs. Haven't come across any maternity ones yet, but there's lots of organisations that need consumer reps and, you know, probably fresh eyes a lot of them so yeah what did you I remember after our first conversation you said there was something that you wanted to speak about this time or have you already done that I remember you messaged me and you said that yeah I wanted to talk about growth from trauma yeah yeah totally yeah and I think I've already touched on it a little bit but yeah. there's a there's a great um psychologist in Victoria and her name's Erin Bow, and she has a book that's you know fairly new um more more than a healthy baby or something like that it's called or not just a healthy baby and um she has online courses she's big on talking about growth from trauma and that was kind of a new concept to me like until I came across her even though I sort of already knew it like I'd acknowledged that I wouldn't be doing this if I was if it wasn't for that experience she really focuses on that and finding that as your way of healing from it you know what yeah. I mean like use all that hurt and anger and whatever and channel it into something good and it might not even be maternity related at all you know what I mean like it could be something completely different but personal growth there's a lot of birth trauma groups support groups online and I think they're important like they're just Facebook groups full of people like you mm. who've had varying degrees of trauma and experiences and they want to share and I think that was really important for me in the beginning of my whole process like I remember when we were in Hobart after I had the ectopic I was venting so hard in this group about mm. how angry I was about about the whole thing and I got nothing back but understanding and I felt like at the time they were the only ones who got me you know yeah and that was so important but I think comes a point where you outgrow that and staying in it is just re-traumatising you and everyone else around you. It becomes a, oh, my God, have you complained? Have you done this? Have you done that? Oh, fuck, this happened to me. Like it just becomes a really negative place to hang around. And I'm still in them. I just turn my notifications off and occasionally check in or share something. In yeah. But I won't sit there and read all the comments and engage mm. because I think it's, bit dangerous you know to hang around in that space you've got to move on eventually and yeah. it's not getting over it or forgiving or any of that it's just going I'm not going to sit in this pile of shit anymore you yeah. know like just 
use it for good somehow or, you know, find something that makes you feel good and don't wallow in it. It's really, yeah. It's like going through grief, you know. You progress through the stages of that's appropriate for you at that time because that's what you needed then and then, you know, it could be however long later you need something else and you progress through those phases and those stages of it. I wonder sometimes whether people feel reluctant to move on from that because they feel like that's somehow letting go of it or that in order to keep some keep in order to honor the importance of something you have to constantly be talking about it and thinking about it and stay angry about it yeah like I've been through that I've you know not birth related but other things in my life where I I find myself not thinking about it for a couple of days and then I'll go back in and remind myself why I was so pissed off about that thing. Mm, Like, that's not health. And there comes a time where you've got to just, you know, you're not leaving it behind. You're just not letting it rule your life anymore and and suck all the joy out of everything anymore. Like, and when you've got little kids, you know, I found it hard to stay in that zone because my postpartum with both the kids was so great. Like, Mm. I just was enjoying that I think when that starts to wear off or something else comes up like the topic that's when I went back into it yeah like you know it's not a race there's no there's no end you'll be dealing with it forever probably but at least try and get something good out of it you know like Mm. helping other people or just um being a bit more gentle on yourself you know like yeah as as my kids get older I'm more aware of it because I want to be able to talk to mm. both of them in a positive way about it mm. you know and and I think they are being exposed to it anyway because they see all the things that I'm doing and mm. listening to those conversations you know how would you say that sharing your story has helped you throughout time um well it's like letting off steam you know so in those times where it's really raw it's um it's just that it's therapeutic just getting it out um and getting validation back from someone mm. else that, that yeah. was fucked up and I, I see you know what you're going through and that's normal um what it what does Erin Bo say she says it's a normal response to an abnormal situation mm-hmm. so knowing that makes you feel less broken like sometimes venting to family and friends can make you feel worse because they will just try and make you feel better instead of listening and by doing that they they make it worse not on purpose but by dismissing your feelings and Mm. you feel like you can't talk to them anymore about it um so find people like find people you can talk to about it who aren't going to do that to you yeah and I think that's why people stay in those groups for so long I think it is you know it's a little letting off steam every single time you share it but yeah the thought that it might help someone else is also good but that's kind of yeah that's kind of taken priority now um over the self relief (laughs) yeah Mm. yeah that's exactly why I started this podcast was for that reason yeah to give people a place where they could vent because often you're the people closest to you are the people that you're least likely to want to talk to yeah you know and I definitely felt that you know it was just too hard for me to have those conversations about my traumatic stories with the people who knew about them yeah 
And then I was concerned about how they felt about it as well and I didn't want to be doing that. I just wanted to have someone I could talk to about it and not have to hear about their stories in return, you know. It, it is true and through time like I'm, I'm less judgmental about that too because I remember saying to I remember I had you know tried to talk about it with mum at one point and she didn't see where I was coming from and couldn't you know she just wasn't mm. very empathetic and I was really f- crushed by that for a long time but now I'm like you know what it's Again, I see that some people can't listen to you because they have their own shit and it brings up their own shit mm. and they don't know what to say. Yeah. And so they say the wrong thing. Mm. Like, it's okay, just find someone else mm. you can talk to. You need someone. Yeah. And if it's a random, if it's a Facebook group and they're strangers, sometimes it's easier to talk to strangers. Uh, definitely, definitely. Yeah. yeah. The, the last thing I wanted to ask you was it, what would you say to someone, obviously, you know, everyone's situations are very different, but what would you say to someone who's just gone through an unexpected C-section and looking at the future possibilities of having more children and in regards to their options mm. of having a H-back or a V-back or even just processing an unexpected C-section? Yeah. Um, before you go thinking about doing it again, I think you should address address the stuff that's going on, like find someone qualified to talk to. There are birth counsellors and people, you know, trained to do debriefing and you can do virtual sessions with Mm. psychologists now, which is great. You know, you don't have to leave your home. You can even, I know people who will, you know, if you need to take your baby with you, they'll walk around the park with you and do your session that way, Mm. you know. Um, and I hear a lot about trauma and exercise and moving it out of your body. Mm. That's a, you know, I've heard that so many times. It's not something I've delved into a lot myself personally, but, um, yeah, I've heard it. Like trauma <laughs> is stored in the body and um, and there are, you know, people you can go and see to help like acupuncture and stuff, just let it out. Release it. Yeah. Mm. Um so there's lots of different things. There's lots of different ways you can um, process it. There's, you know, two books I've read that are awesome, that one I mentioned before and How to Heal a Bad Birth. That one was my, like, I can't recommend that one highly enough because it had one little bit on cesarean under general anaesthetic and I was like, <sighs> I found it. Like someone, yeah. you know, acknowledges that. And it was, it was like two paragraphs or something, but it was there and it was acknowledging that you feel different to other cesarean, you know, people yeah. who've had a cesarean. Um, yeah, find someone you can talk to about it. But as far as future births goes, like if you want a different outcome, you can't do things the same way. There are exceptions. Like there are some people who, you know, I've encountered through the home birth cesarean group who had their private midwife they had the you know the best model of care for them they were healthy that and something still happened and they needed to transfer and have a cesarean like I don't think it's healthy to ask like focus on what could I have done differently what Mm. did I do wrong but I think that's normal as well so just oh fuck people always say be gentle on yourself and it's true like you know but get help as well because sometimes you get so, well, I did anyway, get so 
tuned in, especially in the next pregnancy, on one little thing. Mm. And it's amazing how after one session with my psychologist, I'd leave with a totally different perspective. Like they just have such a way of asking questions where as soon as that words have come out of their mouth, like it hits you. Yeah. Like, oh, shit. They're, and so I think seeing someone who's trained, like not all counsellors are created equally um, and who comes recommended by others. Mm. But, yeah, like really thinking about the birth, like I mentioned before, it's not going to be the same as this one. Even if you have another cesarean, it will be a different experience and probably a better one. Like I know people who've had two or three cesareans mm. and um, the last one or, the, you know, next one is better than the one before because you you change, you know, yeah. things about it. You know more, yeah, you, you know, know just more. your experience changes. Yeah, and you make different choices. If you're someone who just went with the flow the first time mm. and did the, you know the hospital birth and and we're traumatized by it then I wouldn't recommend doing that again um some people don't have a choice take someone with you who's going to advocate for you like a doula mm. you, can, you know someone who can have your back while you're in there do something differently I, I definitely don't um, I don't advocate having another baby for the sake of healing that previous trauma because um yeah I don't know if that ever works <laughs> but yeah there's heaps of it's different for everyone it depends on what's happened awesome that's all I wanted to ask you cool thank you so much that's all right. thank you so much for tuning in to today's episode please feel free to share your thoughts with me by leaving a comment review or rating on your preferred podcast platform you can also engage with me on my business page on Instagram at lifeendlens underscore photography and on Facebook by the same name. If you know of someone who may be interested in telling their story here, or if you yourself would like to, please get in touch. I have a submission form which can be found by following the link in my bio on Instagram. Otherwise, you can Google my business name and get in touch with me via my website or email.